the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this chant when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the toppermost of the poppermost. And I say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Where are we going, Johnny? Straight to the top, boys. Oh yeah, where's that? The toppermost of the toppermost. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to February of 1964. I'm Ed Chen. I'm Kid O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quibell. All right. We will soon enough be going into the charts. But for our feature this month, we kind of wanted to talk about season 17, the 1963 to 1964 season of The Ed Sullivan Show, which, of course, we all know because of three certain shows in February. <laughs> yep, and uh, those three uh, certain shows not only launched the Beatles, but you can argue really launched the British invasion in America. Although, as we'll be seeing, there were British acts, a significant number of British acts, who made their American television debut even before the Beatles went on in February. First of all, I, I think before we get to them, I think it's important to talk about the significance of the Ed Sullivan show in general. There's really nothing equivalent to it, uh, certainly in our generation, that we could think of that appealed to such a broad audience. Talked about like MTV, or we talked about American Bandstand and so forth, but that was really only to teens, or maybe in the case of MTV, college kids. Ed Sullivan was the whole family, multi-generational. The late night talk shows picked up a little bit of that, particularly post Carson, as David Letterman went on the ascendancy. He was kind of the face of, let's say, 60s and 70s in up to the present day of music. And then then SNL, Saturday Night Live, also would have a guest on who would do two songs in the early days, sometimes even three songs in a show. But that was the norm on Sullivan. Right, exactly. And of course, in prime time. Martin, was there an equivalent, would you say, to Ed Sullivan in England at this time? I don't really know what we had in British television at that point. Mm -hmm. Sunday Night at the London Palladium was kind mm. of that, but I mean, it, it was a very different show. A lot of the same things went into the Royal Variety shows where they would invite all the popular entertainers of the day, but those were special events. That wasn't like every week. That's what I thought. Yeah, I thought that was not a weekly show. But, you know, during this time, 63-64, if you wanted to make it, and certainly in the case of the British Invasion groups, if you wanted to make it in America, you had to get on Ed Sullivan, period. Brian Epstein certainly knew this in Breaking the Beatles in the U.S. And you take it back a decade... Elvis made it when he got on Ed Sullivan. Buddy Holly made it when he got on Ed Sullivan. The one thing we have to say about Ed is Ed was fairly colorblind. Yeah, that's a very important point. There was a documentary made in 2018 about this issue, and, uh, and I haven't been able to find a lot more about it because I'd, I'd really like to see it. But yeah, he really was colorblind. He gave a lot of African-American uh, performers their start and, and breakthrough on the show when a lot of other networks were too afraid to do it, too afraid of you know, offending advertisers or whatever. But Ed Sullivan 
didn't care. He only saw talent. It's just amazing when you look back at the you know variety. I mean, <laughs> this was a variety show in every sense. Uh, the variety of entertainers he had on on his. I'd, I'd love to be able to see the one that was the week before the Beatles first were on there. Because the week before, they had Sammy Davis Jr. and Elliot Fitzgerald, and I love both of those two. Above their individual performances that are available on YouTube, I don't know if the whole show is. I haven't been able to find it. Weirdly, I don't know if a lot of the entire shows are no longer available. or I know that the, the archive was purchased, and a lot of them are now only available cut up, and you can only see them like in packages or around certain themes. I agree. I'd love to see the whole show. Mm. Well, I mean, the vast majority of them do still exist. You know, mm-hmm. there's one or two which didn't get taped or the tapes have gone missing or gotten destroyed over the years. But Ed Sullivan was very careful to protect his tapes. He had kinescopes made of basically every show from the beginning until the end. Smart. And so all of those were in his vault and all of those have since been sold to what they call Sofa Entertainment. And those are the folks who really were able to put together the John Lennon Imagine film all those years ago. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. Yep, you're right. The Ed Sullivan Show premiered on June 20th, 1948. Over the next 23 years, it featured more than 10,000 guests in more than 1,000 hours of performances. Until recently, those vintage shows were gathering dust. The producer Andrew Solt forked out $5 million for the library, 27 tons of kinescope, which he transported from New Jersey to Hollywood in two 80-foot trucks. It was the highest production value show for its day, and it captured these great artists in their prime. And when you see it today, it's sometimes better than you even remember it. Salt remembers watching the show every Sunday night with his family, like millions of other Americans. What Ed Sullivan loved the most was talent. What's remarkable is he stayed on the air without really being able to sing, dance, or tell a joke. But he knew how to present a show. America trusted his taste, and he put on an incredible show 50 weeks a year for 23 years. In our audience tonight is one of the fine singing stars of Broadway, now starving, now starving. The first week of the 1963-1964 season was on September 29th. The next week, the Angels were on The Ed Sullivan Show. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've talked about them quite a bit. And on that same show, he also had Dick Dale. You look at that combination. You had a girl group and you had the, the guitar wizard there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this was you know very typical of his shows. I mean, again, just seeing the wide variety of uh, talent. It's kind of weird. By the time it had gotten to us, other than the rock acts or the pop acts of the time, we, we kind of knew the Ed Sullivan show for Topo Gigio and Ed clowning around with the little mouse. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> From the perspective of where we are today, Ed Sullivan is a relic, but not really. The kids should really go out and investigate because that, that's a significant chunk of our contemporary popular history there. Absolutely. I mean, as I said, it's questionable whether the British invasion would have happened without him. I mean, he played a big part in it. So week three, Tony Bennett and Leslie Gore. (laughs) Now there's a duo I would have liked to have heard try and do a song together. Yes. (laughs) The, The next week, there is Sir Cliff, Sir Cliff Richard. Not quite Sir yet, but Cliff and Edie, Edie Gourmet. Not clashing of generations exactly, but a bit of a generation gap there. 
we move on to not the next week, but two weeks later on show number six, Morecambe and Wise, who were not known to the American public. British comic yeah. geniuses. Yeah. Yep. yep. So it's well known that Ed Sullivan had his fingers around the world and he was looking for acts who he thought would be good for the Ed Sullivan show. And so there's Morecambe and Wise. Mm-hmm. And of course, Morecambe and Wise have a significant Beatles connection a little bit later uh, once the Beatles actually make it. Yep. We'll uh, be seeing them again. <laughs> so we skip forward a couple of weeks to show number 12. Tessie O'Shea. Yes. Musical figure. Yeah. <laughs> Emphasis on the figure. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh. I didn't mean uh, it. Uh, apologies to Tessie O'Shea fans <laughs> out there. Ed, Ed, Ed. You know, I was born and bred in London. It's the only city I know. Though it's foggy and cold and wet, I'd be willing to take a bet that there ain't no other place I'd like to go. Believe me. And along with Tessie O'Shea, there's our buddy. There's Frank Ifield. Yay! Once before the Beatles make their appearance on Ed Sullivan, here is Frank doing Winter Wonderland. Oh, yeah, with no Leodolin. Oh, wow! Walking in a winter, walking in a winter, walking in a winter It's just a pretty much straightforward version of Winter Wonderland. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Okay, so the next week, as we go into late December, early January, there's Hank Williams Jr., who we spoke of last month. Very young Hank Williams Jr. The week following that, week 14 of season 17, The Singing Nun, doing not just Dominique, but other favorite Catholic songs. Oh, wow. He's got variety on this show, hasn't he? He did. He really did. That was what made him so popular. Now, they weren't in the studio. They didn't fly over to New York, but they did get a filmed performance of The Singing Nun. Oh, okay. Week 15, there's Connie Francis. Mm-hmm. Week 16, there's Bobby Vinton. Yep. Was his suit made of velvet? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not go and look at Bobby Vinton's performance. Two weeks later, the show Martin was speaking of, the first show in February, the Beatles would appear on the Ed Sullivan show. And it's Sammy Davis Jr. and Ella Fitzgerald. Who have we had an Ella Fitzgerald song? We had one, didn't we? Like in the summer? So I seem to remember that. And Sammy, we just had a couple of months back. Yes. Hey, listen. Yeah. Would you do me a favor, Ed? Now, I've never asked really a favor, mm-hmm. but you know, Ella Fitzgerald, I know her. She's like like family, you know, but I have never sung with her. You never have sung with Ella uh, Fitzgerald? No, uh, no I, could, could you fix it so I could sing a song with her? Right away. Could you do that? Right away, I'll take You're it You're right truly away. a great and glorious man. <laughs> Hello, Miss First Lady. <laughs> Can I... Uh, I tell you what, you, you sing and I'll, I'll let me watch it. If the water's nice, I'll jump me. in. Oh, yeah. 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 You made my life so glamorous. Oh, you can't. 
wonderful. Oh, yeah. It is marvelous. Yeah, yeah. That you could care for. And so that brings us to season 17, episode 19, the first show, February the 9th, 1964. You know, we don't need to say much more about that, but the Beatles certainly understood the importance of it. And you look at it, it still kind of amazes me a little bit that Ed gave basically 20 minutes over to the Beatles in that first show. Yeah, he knew that this was, in his words, going to be a really big shoe. And as he said, with the Beatles, as he pronounced it. So he was famous for his um, interesting pronunciations. But he was smart. You know, he really played it up. I mean, he knew this was going to be a ratings winner. And of course, another interesting note about that night was that the cast of Oliver performed with a young Davy Jones. Playing uh, the Artful Dodger. Of course, would go on to be in the Monkees, which was originally a made-for-TV Beatles imitation band <laughs> that would go on to be a lot more than that. How fascinating that Davy Jones was there that same night. Yeah. Well, and Davy Jones frequently says that is what really made him want to go and be in the monkeys. Yeah. What John Lennon would say about you know, when he was a teenager. It's like, well, I went over and I looked at that. I saw the girl screaming and I thought that's a good gig. <laughs> Now, just an interesting aside, when Davy Jones stopped being the Artful Dodger, he was replaced by a very young Phil Collins. <laughs> no way! Wow. Then the last word on oh. Davy Jones as the Artful Dodger, they actually went and did a number of other different shows. There's a Merv Griffin where he's actually interviewed. Wow. From around wow. that time, so. Hmm. Interesting. The next week from Miami Beach, the second week of the Beatles on Sullivan, best known for Sonny Liston and Muhammad Ali being there around the show. All right. But they got the whole show to themselves this time, did they? No, there were other acts on the show. Okay. They got about a third of the show. They had basically in uh, at the front of the show and towards the end of the show. I don't remember who the other acts are off the top of my head, but that show is available in its entirety. Right. All three of these shows have been put out on video, and you can you can buy the DVDs of them. Yep. Then the next week, the final week of the Beatles on Sullivan, which is not live because the Beatles had already returned home by that point. This was actually taped on the afternoon of the 9th of February, the Beatles' third performance on the Ed Sullivan Show, and they only did the one set. Mm-hmm. Right. And you must tell me, because I, I know I've seen this, but it's been a long time. Pinky and Perky, what is that? <laughs> Amongst the other guests on that show were Pinky and Perky. Yeah. Pinky and Perky were pigs. They were basically the chipmunks. But the mm -hmm. English version, and they were, they, yeah, they were like pigs that sang and whatever. Yeah, yeah, and they had their own show. Okay. We have actually mentioned them on this show because earlier in the year they'd done their own Pinky and Perky jukebox jury and, and they sang was it She Loves You that they that Pinky and Perky did on their on their jukebox jury? I Something don't like that.
course, was a number made famous by the Beatles and sung there by that pert pair of pop-eyed piglets, Pinky and Perky. How do you vote that, jury? Yes, two say hit and two say miss. So let's see what our second jury in the audience have to say. Yes, well, I think there's no doubt that that is a... You know, so before the Chipmunks did the Chipmunks sing the Beatles, Pinky and Perky had done a jukebox jury parody. Well, they were the act and they were they were singing Beatles songs. Oh, my God. Somewhere out there, there must be a Pinky and Perky does the Beatles album that must be worth at least 50 pence. <laughs> Well, you know, nobody's done a Pinky and Perky podcast. Sorry, we'll, we'll, we, will, we will get to that later. Watch this space. <laughs> All right, as we move on, episodes 23 and 24. So for two weeks running, he had the Dave Clark Five on. This is just two weeks after the third appearance of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Once the Beatles kicked off the British invasion. Now we're into it. And Ed Sullivan saw how successful that was. So uh, so now we're starting to see more. Then we're going to see more and more coming on the show. At this point, Dave Clark 5, I mean, it's kind of funny to think of it now, but I mean, they were real rivals of the Beatles at that point. The teen magazines always had to have one against the other. Exactly. You know, while the pacemakers were somewhat large here, they weren't big enough to be competition. So it was... The Beatles or the Dave Clark Five? Which yeah. is it? Yep. Right. All right. Show 25 of season 17. There's Bobby Vinton and there's the Ladybugs. <laughs> you don't know who the Ladybugs were. You haven't seen a little show called Petticoat Junction. The three cute, scantily dressed country young ladies on Petticoat Junction. There was an episode or two where they formed a singing group because they wanted to be like the Beatles. So the ladybugs were introduced in the Petticoat Junction show, and then Ed just had them on for whatever reason. It was CBS. You know, uh, even Ed Sullivan was not immune to a, a little pressure from the suits of the network, even though they weren't very good. I've seen the clip. I've seen the clip both in Petticoat Junction and I've seen the Ed Sullivan clip. It's slightly funny, but these young ladies coming out and seeing, I saw him standing there. Not up to Sullivan standards. No. <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks after that, there's the searchers on show number 27. <laughs> A few weeks after that, show number 30, Stevie Wonder, not little Stevie Wonder, but Stevie Wonder mm-hmm. and Jerry and the Pacemakers. Again, not together, but... Both of them on the May 3rd, 1964 show. Yeah, at this point, Stevie was transitioning from the little. He's hitting puberty now. (laughs) (laughs) Not much of a career left for him now. He's lost his boyhood charm. That's right. (laughs) It's all downhill from here. (laughs) The next week, Dusty Springfield and Jerry and the Pacemakers were back. And much to the bane of Peter and Gordon, there's Bobby Rydell doing his version of World Without Love. Oh dear. Not yeah. good? Yep. Let's sing out a tune. Rain clouds hide the moon. I'm okay. Here I stay with my loneliness. I don't care what they say. I won't stay in a world without love. 
But separate from that, it is because of this performance that while Peter and Gordon were riding the wave and were on their own way up to the top of the charts, Ed Sullivan invited them on. But sorry, kids, you can't do your hit song. We just had your hit song on at the end of last season. Oh, jeez. Dear me, that's terrible. Well, so is Bobby Rydell's version of it. <laughs> it's a song without hope when he's singing it. Oh! <laughs> a week later, there's our other buddy, Paul Anka. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Made the Beatles famous. Exactly, yeah. And you really see here the American artists that were ruling the charts before now the the British Invasion artists are coming in. They're desperately trying to catch up. And we will see a song on here which particularly sad and an artist desperately trying to do anything he can to catch on to the British Invasion wave. That's for sure. That's in the American charts, by Mm -hmm. the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Show 33, the next week, there's Markham and Wise again, and this is the week when we got that clip of Ed Sullivan interviewing the Beatles on the set of Hard Day's Night. This is the one where we get all those famous photos of Peter, Paul, and Mary hanging out with the Beatles, and Dick Van Dyke and the cast of Mary Poppins hanging out with the Beatles. All of that happened during this set of interviews that were shown on this show. That's cool. The next week, show 34, the Dave Clark Five are back again. So this is their third appearance on Ed. Wow. In this season. Dave Clark Five at three. (laughs) The week after. And if we ever get Billy J, maybe we can ask him about it. There's Billy J. Kramer. As you know, kind of as the first half of the season went, it's like, oh, okay. There's a Frank Ifield and there's a Morecambe and Wise. But as we get to the end of the season, there's a British act on every week on Sullivan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Near enough. Episode 36, The Return of Sammy Davis Jr. So Ed also wanted to give his buddies a little bit of a pat on the back here. Even if you're not in the top of the charts, I'll still love you and I'll still have you on the show. Sure. Episode 37, there's Trini Lopez. Those who were on the charts were successful before the Beatles came along. You know, they're still trying to show that they have relevance and are keeping up. Episode 38, Bobby Vinton and Connie Francis. And then episode 40, closing out the 1963-1964 season, there's Steve Lawrence, but there's also Helen Shapiro. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that Helen Shapiro appeared on there because, unfortunately, she never really had that much success in the U.S. She just didn't catch on here. There had been Jerry, there had been Billy, and there had been the Beatles, although no Scylla yet. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah, no Scylla. So that will have to wait for subsequent seasons. Yes. So yeah, there is the 1963-1964 season 17 of the Ed Sullivan Show. It is certainly headlined by those three, well, three plus an interview appearances from the Beatles. But it was a really pretty amazing time to be sitting there watching these shows. And the only competition was like ABC's Disney. Uh, oh, Wonderful World of Disney, on, yeah. Wonderful mm-hmm. World of Disney on, on Sunday evenings. Is it Bill King who has the story about watching the Scarecrow instead of watching Sullivan on that first of February, February 9th? I'm trying to remember if that's Bill King or Wally. One of the uh, Beatle fan folks were youngsters at the time, and they wanted to watch the Scarecrow on the <laughs> wide world of Disney. <laughs> wow. Oh, boy. So, as you can see, there are lots of acts who were on the Ed Sullivan show, and... As we've been saying, here's another topic where you could do an entire podcast, particularly because you have, what, 
like 25, 30 seasons of Sullivan you could go through? It's quite a bit. You know, you could absolutely do an entire podcast on on just that, the, just the sheer variety of artists that were on there. We have the list. I don't know that we necessarily have copies of everything, but you might be able to piece together a lot of it. Absolutely. Well, and that's true, but, you know, with how busy everyone is, how would someone start a podcast? Well, as Ringo said, with the washing and the cooking, you know. Right. Well, I'm sorry we can't be there in person, you know, to do this show, but everybody's busy these days with the washing and the cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, when we started coming up with Toppermost, the Poppermost, we were thinking exactly the same thing. And as we were experienced with online recording through Zencaster... We looked at what the service provided in their own podcast hosting services and uh, already through our experiences of using online recording with Zencaster for the show When They Was Fab, which Ed has presented for many years now, we were already aware of their ability to provide separate recordings for each participant, which is helpful, all of which are recorded on each person's own devices in order to cut down on any signal degradation. Separate recordings are a good thing because then if anybody's levels are lower than somebody else's, you can equalize these and it works better for editing that way. Martin knows. Martin is the man who hosts the podcast on podcast. Uh, One thing I do want to mention, just recently they've added phones, both iPhone and Android, to the devices which are compatible with Zencaster, and, and that has already been very helpful to us. So the automated editing on Zencaster is helpful, even though we do more editing afterwards. Yeah, believe it or not, folks, we do actually go in and cut down these shows. As with a few services, it places the episodes onto all your streaming platforms. That's the other thing about Zencaster now, is they are also the host for this podcast. And their online diagnostics are very easy to use. With recording processes and editing services provided, you have everything you need to create, edit, and distribute your podcast every step of the way at an affordable price. And it's easy to get started. All you have to do is go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use the code TOPPERMOST, and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. We want you to have the same easy experiences that we do for all our podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. All right, so that is the Ed Sullivan Show. So we're moving on to February of 1964 on the British charts. So both She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand have vacated the top slot. At number one on the week of February 6th was The Searchers with Needles and Pens, uh, which would be at number one for the first two weeks and number three for the last two weeks of February 1964. A really good song. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I love it. That's one of their best. At number two, there's George Martin, who produced Jerry and the Pacemakers with I'm the One, would be at number two, number two, number four, and number six. At number three, the hippie hippie shape from the swinging blue jeans, which would start its fall down the charts, number three to number four to number six to number 12. At number four, Glad All Over from the Dave Clark Five, yep, which would also start its fall from number four to number six to number 10. To number 14. I want to hold your hand had fallen all the way down to number seven. Those Americans just caught on late. Yeah. <laughs> it's over. It's all over. <laughs> number seven to number 15 to number 15 to number 17. At number 10, there's our buddy. There's Frank Ifield. Still doing what he can with Don't Blame Me, which would rise from number 10 to number eight. 
then fall to number 12 to number 15. Mm-hmm. At number 11, I Only Want to Be With You, Dusty's also starting its fall from number 11 to number 17 to number 17 to number 25. At number 12, Stay by the Hollies, which would start its fall as well. Number 12 to number 19 to number 21 to number 31. A lot of the same songs from previous months here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At number 15, I Think of You by the Mersey Beats, which would rise from 15 to 9 to 9 to 5. At number 17, I'm in Love by the Foremost, which would just kind of sit around for a while from number 17 to number 18 to number 20 to number 23. At number 19, So She Loves You is still hanging around. It would fall a little bit, but not too much. Number 19 to number 21 to number 23 to number 28. At number 22, I think what we could call the comeback record from Brian Poole and the Tremolos, their cover of Roy Orbison's Candyman. It's better than some of their previous records, but it's still not great. Come on, baby. like the live kind of feel to it it's definitely that mersey beat kind of sound with the strong drums and you know you could imagine them performing this at the cavern i absolutely can picture it i like the guitar solo in it and again the drums i like that is it super memorable no but i kind of like it for the time capsule that it is. I don't see any reason why anyone would seriously want to listen to this. Yeah, I mean, it's again, not their best, not that, I, don't I don't know, know, maybe it is their best. This is Brian Poole and the Tremolos. True, you about. know, but I guess I just, I don't know. There's something about the rawness of the sound that I like. And it, and I yeah. think they did capture that kind of live feel to it. But is it better than Roy Orbison's version? Probably not. <laughs> no, I really liked the guitar solo when it came in. Candyman! Best yeah. bit about the song, actually. It caught on at least a little bit. It would rise from number 22 to number 13 to 11 to number 8 for the month. Did it would well. in the top 10. It, it did pretty well. Mm-hmm. At number 23, I'm the Lonely One by Cliff Richard, which would go from number 23 to number 14 to number 8 to number 10. So it, too, would find its way into the top 10. Well, you don't know how much you mean to me. I said goodbye. I left you there to cry Well, you don't know How much I've missed you so But now it's done Well, I'm the lonely one I liked Cliff's voice on this. It's Elvis-like, but not a complete copy. I can kind of see from this record why he was such a rock star in Britain. I mean, I think he definitely had that 
dreamy quality to his voice, although it still had a little grit on this record. So I wasn't insane about the song, but I liked his vocals on it. I can see, as I said, why he was popular, because he did have a nice, dreamy quality to his voice. I like Hank and Bruce's guitar work on this. Mm-hmm. It's written by uh, Gordon Mills of the group The Viscounts, and he wrote also for Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, Freddie and the Dreamers, Peter and Gordon. Oh. And here we go. He wrote or co-wrote the classic Tom Jones hit, It's Not Unusual, and Where Would We Be Now Without That Song and Carlton in the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air dancing to it. <laughs> Good point. And kind of an interesting thing, someone has AI'd early John Lennon over this version of this song, and it actually works pretty well. So that tells you that the bass of Cliff singing there could kind of be replaced by John, and it still sounds more or less like John. Hmm. I love you so, baby, come on home. I'll be free. Well, you come back someday, I'll have my fun, now I'm the lonely one, oh yeah. If you have any interest at all in AI, this is actually a pretty good one. And while it doesn't sound like a Beatles song, it does sound like John Lennon singing this song. Wow. Great. I'll check that out. At number 24, there's the Stones with I Want to Be Your Man, falling off from number 24 to number 27 to number 31 to number 36. It had topped out in the previous month at number 12. Okay, at number 28, Anyone Who Had a Heart by Scylla Black. Yes. Which is very much on the rise. What am I to do? Every time you go away, I always say, this time it's goodbye, dear. Loving you the way I do, I take you back Without you I die, dear Knowing I love you so Anyone who had a heart Would take me in his arms And love me too We've spoken of this song before And we're going to see two other versions of it On the British charts here in February It would rise from number 28 to number 10, to number two, to number one. So it premiered at number 28, and in three weeks, it would be at number one. It's another triumph for George Martin. Mm -hmm. The arrangement on this is really nice. And he just had such a way with doing these gorgeous arrangements. And Zola Black could really handle it, never really overpowered by it. And as I've talked about before, Backrack and David compositions are hard to sing. The weird chord changes, the time signatures, they are hard to sing. As is demonstrated by one of the other versions. Right, so. exactly. Bert Bacharach was apparently a really big fan of this version. Yes. He's reported as saying, uh, at one point it looked as if Shirley Bassey was going to record it, but mm-hmm. George Martin suggested that Scylla record it, and I agreed immediately. 
It was mm-hmm. late in 63 and Liverpool was taking over popular music with some great songs and great people. I don't know how immediate it was. Didn't we have a version of that story where he kind of protested a little bit? Yeah, I think he's told different versions. Let's put Probably. it that way. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen that version, but I've also seen the version that Martin was just saying that, yeah, mm. that he's like, oh, I, I liked her all along. I think in later years, he said, well, I've always liked her. <laughs> well, of course he would because of all the royalties. Exactly. (laughs) This is a great version. Uh, That organ there at the end is maybe the only very slight mistake, but it's not bad. It's kind of slightly intrusive. Yeah, I like the change of the instrumentation where they use the bassoon instead in the arrangement. That sounds really nice with that sort of like lower sound tone to it. Mm -hmm. And then the way the tune just builds up through the entirety of the song. Yeah, very dramatic, very emotional. At number 32, Jerry and the Pacemakers with You'll Never Walk Alone, which would only have one more week on the charts as it would fall to number 36 before it disappeared. At number 39, the cover of All My Loving by the Dowlins, number 39 to number 39 to number 46. Mm -hmm. At number 40, 8 by 10 by Ken Dodd, which would go from number 40 to number 31 to number 22 to number 22. It's another comedian doing serious music. We've talked about Ken Dodd before on this show. He had a lovely voice. Really, (laughs) I did. If I could be the glass that holds your picture Those lips I love would then be close to me And so I'll always keep and hold your picture Until the day that you come back to me Eight by ten Eight by ten A souvenir of things might have been. It's a very sentimental song. I mean, I know I keep bringing up music hall, but I could definitely picture this being performed in a variety show or music hall, getting the audience to sing along. You know, it's not a funny song, obviously, but in those kind of performances, they would also sing very sentimental kind of songs. It falls over the line into schmaltz in a couple of places for me. And that's perfect. For that kind of performance, they would do those kind of songs too. It's not my kind of thing, but no. uh, B has a lovely voice. How many songs are there out there that are about photographs? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's photograph, of course. There's photograph, yeah. <laughs> you got the joke. Okay. Yes. <laughs> At number 41 was the cover of Money by Burn Elliott and the Fen Men. We mentioned it because, well, we got an answer to a question we had in a previous show. The Fen Men were formerly known by the name The Blue Caps, and why did they change it? Why don't you tell us, Martin? My friend Tim said they changed the name because The Blue Caps was the name of the backing band for Gene Vincent. Oh, right. We really should have remembered that because that is a well-known band, and it's like, oh, yeah. Yep. Oops. So there's our correction for you. Mm-hmm. There you go. So we move on to the next week, February 13th, 1964. Needles and Pens was at number one. I'm the One was at number two. Hippie Hippie Shake was at number four. Solo with Anyone Who Had a Heart had moved all the way up to number 10. I Want to Hold Your Hand was at number 15. At number 21 was She Loves You. At number 42 is the second version of 
anyone who had a heart, which we've already covered over on the American side, the original, the Dion Warwick version, which wouldn't do much. So it would go from number 42 to number 47 to number 47. Yeah, there's a bit of bad blood there between Dion and Scylla over that, isn't yes. there? I guess Dion felt that Scylla copied some of her mannerisms. I do love this version, and I love Dion Warwick. Nobody else could interpret Bacharach and David like she could. And, and there are two different takes on it. I just love her version, too. And to the bad blood, well, you know, what can you I think there was probably some jealousy there about how it performed on the British charts, you know, that her version didn't do as well. And I like them both. Well, but that was the way of the charts on both sides of the pond at the time. Someone would have a hit record or even a kind of hit record and someone else on the other side would go, well, I can do that a little bit better. I think this is better than that. You know, let's go into the studio and let's record a version. And right. So mm-hmm. that's what they did. And as often as not, the cover would be more successful as the originals kind of drifted across the pond. Right, exactly. Yeah, that was very common. Famously, it even happened in America with songs like Blue Suede Shoes, recorded by Carl Perkins. But before he released it, Elvis did a cover version of it, and that sold better. Mm-hmm. And it came out before Carl Perkins' version. Right. Well, and while it wasn't a big, huge hit, Del Shannon and For Me to You. Yeah. At number 43, Nadine by Chuck Berry, which would move from 43 to 27 to 27. This kind of answers our question we've had about, gee, why are they re-releasing all these Chuck Berry songs? Chuck Berry was just ending his prison term. And so this would be Chuck's first new record after being released from prison in October of 63. Yes, his prison stay. It does resemble Maybelline a bit, the composition, because it features lyrics about pursuing a girl, except this one, it's not pursuing her in a car, but on foot and taxi. And I love the lyrics in this. This is just classic, clever Chuck Berry stuff. I mean, he was really intellectual with his lyrics. I mean, you know, she moves around like a wayward summer breeze, moving through the traffic like a mounted cavalier. And I was campaign shouting like a Southern diplomat. I mean, come on. Yeah, I heard his time in prison, Chuck Berry hadn't missed a step. Not at yeah. all. And apparently in the documentary Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, Bruce Springsteen talks about this song particularly and, and singled out the lines. I saw her from the corner when she turned and doubled back, started walking toward a coffee-colored Cadillac. And he said, I've never nice. seen a coffee-colored Cadillac, but I know exactly what one looks like. <laughs> Just by the words. You know, if you listen to one of his songs, it sounds like somebody's coming in sitting down in a chair and telling you a story about their aunt or their brother or uh, describing some some girl's descriptiveness and his eye for detail. Like uh, uh, Nadine, you know. Uh, she was standing on a corner. I saw her on a corner. She turned and doubled back, started walking to a coffee-colored Cadillac, you know? <laughs> it was like... I've never seen a coffee-colored Cadillac, but I know exactly what one looks like. <laughs> oh, Nadine, honey, is that you? Seem like every time I see you, darling, you got something else to do. I saw her from the corner when she turned and doubled back. 
Chuck was an American poet, let's face it. Yep, he really was. Just so intelligent, the lyrics. Roll over Beethoven is another perfect example. Brown-eyed, handsome man. Such intelligent lyrics. Nobody was like him. It may not be absolutely top-notch Chuck Berry, but it's very close. I really like those horns as well. Yes. And, of course, the guitar. Who's doing the great piano playing, do we know? There's some really good soloing on the piano. Johnny Johnson, known to many as the father of rock and roll, Johnny was a sideman. He's best known for playing piano in Chuck Berry's band, a gig that lasted almost three decades. Number 47, I wasn't sure that I necessarily knew who Major Lance was, but when I heard the song, I was like, oh, it's that guy. Walking through the park, it wasn't quite dark, there was a man sitting on a bench. Out of the crowd as his head lowly bowed, he just moaned and it made no sense. He just go, mm, 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 mm. The name of the song is Um 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 Um. Don't get that mixed up for the Crash Test Dummies song. Yeah, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was written <laughs> written by Curtis Mayfield and it would go from number 47 to number 40. But it's a song you know. I mean, yeah. you heard it. Exactly. I looked at it too and I'm like, Major Lance, why does that ring a bell? And then as soon as I heard it, I'm like, oh, that song. <laughs> um, a great soul song. And boy, Martin, I'm sure you thought it too. You're like, this is Curtis Mayfield. This is Curtis Mayfield. Yeah. It. The chord changes, the smooth gospel touches. You just listen to it and you're like, yep, that's Curtis Mayfield. I like it a lot. I think this is just a classic early 60s soul sound. Yeah, it's a really good record. I love it. It really stays with you. you know? Written so- when Curtis was 20 years old. Wow. Curtis met Major Lance when they were in Chicago. Major Lance was just a kid. They met and stayed friends. Say, I have to get my Chicago mentions in every episode. You know me. (laughs) Major Lance, he isn't a showy singer. He doesn't try to impress you with vocal acrobatics in every line. But he's still so soulful. It's smoother than silk. Exactly. His voice. Exactly. That's what I love about it. Then the horns and then the maracas. I really like those maracas that are in there. Yeah. And Major Lance is not a pseudonym. His real first name is Major. Yes. Wouldn't it be funny if he was in the army and he became a major because then he'd be Major Major. (laughs) (laughs) Or Lance Corporal Major Lance. (laughs) (laughs) He could do this all night. (laughs) This gives Martin a chance to talk about Northern Soul, which he has mentioned uh, previously in the show. Yes, yes, this song with those horns that you mentioned and the percussion, it's got a very Northern Soul feel to it. It's got that rhythm to it. Yeah, and and I think Major Lance did go on to become a figure of Northern Soul, and rightly so. Right, yeah. And he was a favorite of the Beatles. You look at the 1964 photos of when the Beatles were returning to Heathrow. Paul is holding a copy of USLP OKEH, that's the label, Mm -hmm. number 12106, which is... mm -mm, mm -mm. No, no. (laughs) Six arms, (laughs) the best of Major Lance. Wow. Yeah, I'd never noticed that. You knew Paul had good taste. Under his right arm, he's carrying that record. Very nice. At number 49, 
A Million Drums by Tony Shevaton. You always like the way my baby smiles. Baby smiles. And now you think that I'll be gone a while. Gone a while. So you try to steal her kisses, but you find she really misses me. And you will see. Baby, you will see. That a million drums. I couldn't make her dance. No, a million drums. I couldn't make her dance. Which would only be on the charts for one week, but there is an interesting story about Tony Shevaton. Hmm. Before we get to that, it was yep. kind of an odd record. I mean, yeah, it had a little bit of Spanish flair to it with the guitar and the string arrangement, of course violins because they talk about violins in the song just kind of an odd record to chart in 1964 didn't really excite me that much i'm surprised it's written by jeff barry and artie resnick and i mean they've written some incredible classic songs i don't know this one just didn't really do it for me i mean it was okay the lyrics are awful they really are they're awful it was a huge hit in australia and the lyrics include this Jim, a thousand violins couldn't make her hold your hand. What record have they been listening to? (laughs) (sighs) Oh, man. What do you think, Martin? I don't like the lyrics at all. The music's okay. I'm just surprised coming from two such incredible songwriters. Yeah. Jeff Barry's leader of the pack and Archie Resnick is under the boardwalk, for crying out loud. Top tier stuff. It's not a bad song, but it's not memorable, and it's... Okay, the Australians liked it. Good day to the Australians. <laughs> but the story, yes, there is actually a Beatles connection that this record has. The band Tony Shevaton was in, one of the members of that band was Brian Davies, and talking about his band, a band that he put together in Cardiff in 1960 called The Raiders, uh, we performed one Saturday at the Teenage Show at the Gaumont Cinema. That's one place where the Beatles also played, uh, Queen Street, Cardiff. And straight after the show, went next door to Jerome's Photoshop and had our photo taken with our guitars. Two years later, our singer left us and was replaced by a singer-guitarist named Dave Edmonds. Ooh, Dave Edmonds. And if you don't know how Dave Edmonds hooks up with the Beatles, well, you shouldn't be listening to this show, I don't think. (laughs) The singer that left was Tony Shevaton, who a couple of years later went on to have a number one hit in Australia called A Million Drums. Number one? This was number one? It was a hit record, and it was a number one in Australia. Wow. Mind you, they do have a sense of humor over there. I'm sorry, Australians. I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. We love you. So there's where Dave Edmonds came from. He was in a Cardiff band that formerly featured Tony Shevaton. Wow. Dave Edmonds, we know about his connections to George Harrison. Right. Uh, he was always a big part of Buddy Holiday when Paul McCartney used to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Dave Edmonds is great. What is in Give My Regards to Broad Street? Yes. You know, I know he's played with Ringo, well, Broad Street, amongst others.
on to the next week, the week of February 20th, at number one, another new number one song, Diana by The Bachelors, mentioned because there have been some questions about The Bachelors taking over the number one spot from The Beatles. Well, I mean, they did here, but not directly. And then you look at the lyrics, I can't mention this song with saying, you know, this is a little ditty about Jack and Diane. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, oh, nicely done. My Diane, I'm in heaven when I see you smile. See you smile. Smile for me. My Diane. My Diane. Just to finish off this song, Elvis would cover it in later years. Really? Okay, go ahead, Martin. So, didn't give a bit of history to, to The Bachelors for you. The band were initially formed under the name of the Armonichords in 1957 before changing the names to The Bachelors at the suggestion of Dick Rowe of Decca Records. And they'd have a good number of hit singles in the UK for the next few years, and they were still playing the circuit well into the late 70s. Wow. Why? So they stood together for... Long time. All right. At number two, there's Scylla with Anyone Who Had a Heart. At number four, I'm the One by Jerry and the Pacemakers. At number 15, there's I Want to Hold Your Hand. Hanging on here. At number 19, the new song by the Dave Clark Five, Bits and Pieces, one of their classics. It would rise to number four for the last week in February. A really, really good Dave Clark Five, although the production kind of lets down the drums. The drums could be louder and better. I kind of want to hear a Giles Martin version or a Mal version of this song. The drums could be a little clearer. They're a little murky sounding, but yeah. I still like it, though. I like that. I mean, one of the trademarks I love of the Dave Clark Five are those strong drums, that stomping kind of sound. And I mean, that's, to me, one of the things that makes them so distinctive. So I really like this. It's just so catchy, that thundering beat. The lyrics are nothing brainy or anything like that, but it's just a good rocker. I've just always thought this was a lot of fun classic dave clark five again with the big drums and the group vocals and the drums were muddy that's the way yeah. that i've put it okay i mean so we, we all kind of agree it's, it's a yep. good record but the production kind of lets it down yeah particularly the drums but it's a drum song without the drums there's kind of nothing there isn't that most of dave clark five where they're just <laughs> the drums are at the, the forefront on every one of their songs yeah all right, at number 23 is She Loves You. At number 30, the next song from Dusty Springfield, Stay a While, which would rise to number 18 for the yeah. final week in February. It's a really great vocal, but again, this is the one where the production kind of lets it down. It's more or less a faux wall of sound thing, and the drums are just kind of all over the place. wasn't crazy about this song she sings it really well i mean it's dusty springfield of course she's going to sing it very well but agreed it was kind of a knockoff wall sound production 
not only that, but kind of a rip off of the standard girl group sound. Yeah, I just didn't think it was particularly distinctive and not even her great voice could really rescue it from being just not very memorable. Hmm. I thought it was okay. I mean, it's the same people that wrote the previous big hit, and I only want to be with you. I mean, that was such a great song and so memorable, but this one just didn't stay with you. You put the wrecking crew behind this. This would have been a tremendous track. Yeah. You know, there's potential there. It's just the playing and the production are, eh. Yeah. They just muddy it all up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. At number 33, a new one from Roy Orbison, Born on the Wind, which is not really that well known outside of Roy Orbison circles, but it's a really great record. Is classic Roy Orbison. It would rise to number 21 the next week. It was uh, co written with Bill Dees, who comes out of Texas, and he comes out of Norman Petty. Hmm. This wasn't one of my favorite Roy Orbison songs. I mean, he sings it extremely well. You know, his voice is, of course, it's Roy Orbison. It's incredible. Very cinematic, almost kind of a Western sound to it. I mean, it's very dramatic. Well, it's based on a true story, and it's a really a very, very sad story about a guy whose kids drown, and he drowned trying to save them. Oh, jeez. Kiki's using the same words as me. I've put cinematic in my notes as well. Here we go again. We do this all the time, Martin. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. It was good. There are other Roy Orbison songs that I like better than this, but he sings it extremely well. Like what we were saying about Nadine, it's not absolute top-notch Roy Orbison, yeah. but maybe just a slight cut below, which is still very good. Mm-hmm. Martin, what did you think? Big vocal, (laughs) cinematic, and I preferred another song he wrote with Bill Dees, which was Oh Pretty Woman, and Windsurfer he wrote with him as well. Hmm. At number 44, Over You, the next song from Freddie and the Dreamers, which would rise to number 20 the next week, so 24 slot rise. This is actually probably one of the Freddie and the Dreamers songs I like a little bit better. You couldn't do the Freddie to this one. Over you, over you. Even if I have to wait a year If you change your mind you find me waiting here Perhaps I'm wrong But I feel it won't be long To the time you're mine and I won't be blind Over you, over you, over you, over you I'll take this. No giggling <laughs> and decent harmonies. But the lyrics, yikes. Well, I do love you, but you only make me blue. <laughs> Sorry, Freddie and the Dreamers fans. I was teaching that British Invasion class. I taught one of them recently, and one of my cousins, who is a first generation Beatles fan, took it and she made some comments, gave me feedback, and she says, I'm too hard on Freddie and the Dreamers, that they were big. So I'm sorry, Maureen. I'm doing it again. I know. She's going to dislike me more because I didn't like this song that much. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's you and I against Martin, although neither one of us thinks it's a great song. I'm saying I like it in comparison. 
It's probably the lyrics that really made me switch off. Yeah, they're not great. The next song, Jim Rees, and his next single is I Love You Because. It's at number 45. It will rise to number 26 the next week. It's mellow. It's almost an easy listening tune. It's pretty good. But what is surprising to me, this song is going to be with us all the way into November. This song is going to be in the charts. I've heard this song so many times over the years. This is actually classic Jim Reeves. I love you because you understand Every single thing I try to do You're always there to lend a helping hand I love you most of all because you you It's probably his most played single on the radio in the UK. I've heard this a lot. Well, I do like his voice. I think he is just a classic country, Nashville sound, pop country, nice voice. And I can see why it was a big crossover hit and, and maybe why it stayed on the charts so long, because it is. I mean, it, it has that country sound, but it also has that pop, easy listening. It has it all. It appeals to a wide audience. So I can see why it was a big hit. At number 49, a song called Make Love to Me by John Layton. It's trying to be Mick Jagger's, trying to be the Stones. It's trying to be a little bit naughty, but it fails. I kind of like the rough sound of the track. A little bit of a garage rock tinge to it. You know, I like that it isn't too slick. I like the guitar solo. Other than that, it ain't the Stones. (laughs) It ain't Mick Jagger. Take me in your arms and never let me go. Whisper to me softly while the moon is low Hold me close and tell me what I want to know Say it to me gently, let the sweet tone flow Come closer Make love to me Now this is interesting to us because this was an early Robert Stigwood production Robert Stigwood, the man who would bring the Bee Gees to us and, well, tried to take over the Beatles from Brian Epstein. All right. You look at the label, to use that old David Letterman line, it took eight people to write this song? (laughs) I would never have guessed it would take that many people to write this song. You ought to look at the credits to some modern songs. That's true. As John Stone points out, everyone who even adds a word to a song these days gets a songwriter credit. Yeah, to avoid lawsuits. That's true. Change that two to an and. Okay, you're, you're one of the songwriters. Yep, and it's due to samples and stuff like that. Mal Evans would make a ton of money nowadays. Yes. Oh, yeah, for sure. But I mean, this was just very unusual for 1963, 1964. Yeah, absolutely. He's actually a member of the Tornadoes as well, John yes. Layton, mm-hmm. which is a Joe Meat group. It is mentioned that 
he came to prominence because he was on a TV drama based on Biggles. What is Biggles? We know nothing about Biggles. Do you know anything about Biggles, Martin? Biggles is a World War II fighter, airplane pilot, just a fictional character. It was something that was a drama around that time, and Joe Layton starred in it, and that would get him some notice from the British public. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Joe Layton was on the bill with the Beatles on April the 25th, 1963, along with Jerry, the Big Three, and Billy J. That's quite a lineup. One of Brian's Mersey Beach showcases. Mm, My goodness. So he was in the middle of a Mersey Beach sandwich. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And on January the 15th of 1964, trying to cash in on the Beatles thing, in the U.S., he had a single... His cover of Beautiful Dreamer, which is bigger than his name, is The Liverpool Sound, with (laughs) two caricatures of vaguely Beatle-looking cartoon characters here. It it didn't do anything, but it got released in the States. If you look around, you can find a copy of of the label of the single. The Liverpool Sound. (laughs) Although, how we can call him The Liverpool Sound, I don't know. Yeah. It it didn't matter. He's from England. Close Close enough. enough. Yeah. 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 All right, so we move on to the final week of February for 1964. Still as anyone at heart had risen all the way to number one. At number 17 was I Want to Hold Your Hand. At number 29 was the Stones' next single, Not Fade Away, the cover of the uh, Buddy Holly tune. I'd like to introduce these uh, Rolling Stones to you one at a time. This is the lead uh, vocal right here, Mr. Mick uh, Jagger. Hi, Mick. How are you? And this would be Brian Jones. Is that right? Uh, Brian Jones, how are you? And you are? Bill Wyman. Bill Wyman. He plays bass guitar. And your name? I'm Keith Richard. Keith, how are you? Keith Richard. And your name? Charlie. What is Charlie it? Walton. Charlie what? Waltons. Charlie Waltons. Watts. 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 I see. Now, how long uh, have you fellows been together as a unit now? In About 18 months. 18 months. Uh, do you know the Beatles, gentlemen? Yeah. Well, you cut it. You cut, you cut him in the hair department a little bit, don't you? A bit. Uh, how long has the long hair been fashionable in England? About four years. What are the barbers doing over there now? Starving. Starving? <laughs> Do you ha- is, is there a, a one of you five who seems to be more popular with the young ladies than the others? Or? Not really. No? Because I can't make up my mind. I keep hearing from the young people. Uh, it's more popular with men. Pardon? Mix more popular with men. Mix more popular with men? He's putting you on. He doesn't do a thing to me, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you don't do much to me, though. He said, I don't, you don't do much to me either. Well, what are you going to do? Well, we better get out of this and have you sing, fellas, before we're all arrested. Okay. All right. Once again, the Rolling Stones singing... What is the title of this? Called not, not, not Fade Away. Oh, not Fade Away. The Rolling Stones. I like this. 
I like how they really stress the Bo Diddley beat of the composition and the harmonica is Brian Jones stressing the blues roots of the band. I really like their interpretation of the song. Yeah, an alternative take on a Buddy Holly song. Right. It almost sounds live in the studio. Yeah, it kind of does. It has got a very on-the-spot feel to it. Nobody ever remembers Come On. This and I Want to Be Your Man are the two records they remember as kind of being early Stones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, these are definitely superior to Come On. (laughs) (laughs) All right, at number 34, Billy J and the Dakotas follow-up single, Little Children. This was co-written by Mort Schumann, Doc Pomus's frequent co-writer. Yeah. Um, I'm probably going to have tomatoes thrown at me. I've never particularly liked this song that much. I've liked other Billy J songs more. I've always thought the lyrics were strange. <laughs> You're not the only one. I found an editorial online where it's like, is this possibly the creepiest song of the early 1960s? And yeah, it's definitely out there a little bit. I was glad when you found that, because when I read it, I thought, oh, good, I'm not alone, because I've always just thought it was a very creepy, <laughs> the lyrics were a bit creepy. You know, yeah. I, I, want, I want to go with this girl and make out and kiss and hug, but we can't do it because these damn kids are around. Yeah, and so, like, bribing them, don't don't say anything, and I, I mean, just, ugh, I mean, it's weird. <laughs> but And the tune is a little bit twee, but I kind of like it, actually. Mm-hmm. Separate from the lyrics, the tune itself is. Yeah, I mean, the tune's okay. And of course, Billy J, you know, his voice is great on it. But yeah, I don't know. There's just something really creepy about those lyrics. Yeah, Fifty Shades of Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but there's another song coming up in the uh, American part. On that the American beats, side, that yeah. It's that. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, little children. At number 36, there's I Want to Be Your Man following down the charts. At number 39, a song we've spoken of before, the Hollies cover of Just One Look. This is really the Hollies in full-on faux Beatles mode. Yeah, It's good. It's much more poppy than either Doris Troy or Linda Ronstadt. I like both of the ladies' versions better, but, you know, it's a nice change of pace.
this is definitely on the popular side, but I've got to say, I love Doris Troy's version. I think that's probably my number one favorite because I just love her R&B take on it. And of course, she wrote it. Just has kind of a, I don't know, sexier, flirtier kind of sound to it. A flirtatious sound and and this one is just yeah just straight pop i don't think it works quite as well but yeah i mean it's a fun kind of sound and and that bright hollies song but definitely not my favorite hollies record i think it shows the vocal harmonies shaping into what they would become in classic ollie's uh, style eventually when they get to things like bus stop and things like that i, c- I can see the progression in their vocal style in this from yeah, earlier songs point. Good yeah, it, it's a step along the way, but I mean, it's kind of like what I said, it's them just kind of imitating the Beatles at this point. Yeah, but that's a good point, though, because they were forming mm-hmm. those tight harmonies. Yeah. All right, at number 40, a song we mentioned not because it's a great song, but because of the connections, You Were There by a fella named Heinz. Mm-hmm. Mm, there's not 57 varieties of him, is there? <laughs> Those connections were made at the time. Heinz was not a great singer. Heinz came out of the tornadoes. He wasn't Mm -hmm. always the singer on the songs either that he was credited with. Mm -hmm. This is true. So Heinz went through producer Joe Meek and uh, Robert Stigwood as well. But Joe Meek would find something to do with this fella. He would take him out on the road, convince him to peroxide his hair, a almost albino colored blonde, and pair him with popular performers, including Gene Vincent and Jerry Lee Lewis. Didn't trick the audiences. The audiences threw baked beans over him. Oh, which, which, wow, I, uh, I didn't even realize that when I made that comment. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, man. And we're not going to go into Ringo and his suitcases full of Heinz baked beans. <laughs> no. No. Ooh. Oh, Six degrees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Walk beside me, girl, until the end of time. You were there, you were there. Joe Meek knew Brian Epstein, and it is reported that Joe Meek turned down the Beatles at least four times. Do we believe that? Or, I mean, I believe he turned them down at least once. Yeah, four times? I don't know. But, yeah, I could see at least once. I'm I'm almost glad that he did, because I'm not sure I'd want to hear the Beatles produced by Joe Meek. Mm-hmm. There's a biopic of Joe Meek's life, which has the this priceless uh, bit where they have Brian giving Joe Meek a copy of the tape, mm-hmm. and, and they have the actor reciting this dialogue. Well, he, meaning Brian, he's got this Mersey beat combo. They're just absolute rubbish. <laughs> and he just lifts the tape up and throws it off into the waste paper bin there. It's like... <laughs> Uh, yeah, overacting. <laughs> I haven't seen it and I haven't seen a copy of the clip, but you can just imagine how something like that would go. Oh, jeez. Man, wow. well, as far as the song goes, it's a strange song. It sounds like somewhat promising at the beginning because, you know, it starts out almost like a little bit funky with the bass and drums in the beginning. It could have been all right. But then it just kind of went into a standard sort of pop song with really trite lyrics and yeah. Well, well, that and Heinz just cannot sing. And that's no. the other problem. I was going to say, this is definitely him singing because the vocals are not good. No. Mm-mm. Yeah, they're all over the place. Mm. Tiny Tim looks better compared. Oh! Oh, dear. 
Well, I don't think there's any Heinz fans out there. There may be Tornadoes fans, but I don't think there are any Heinz fans yeah, out there. So there's nobody for us to apologize to. I guess no. not. No. no. <laughs> All right. So we are going to close out the month of February on the British side with number 49, the third version of Anyone Who Had a Heart by an actress named Mary May. Every time you go away, I always say, this time it's goodbye, dear. Loving you the way I do, I take it back. Without you, I'd die, dear. Knowing I love you so. actually pretty similar to the Scylla version. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It's very similar, and it's a decent version. I still don't think it beats DM Warwick's or Soul Black's. She's got a pleasant voice. I couldn't find a lot of information on her. I think this was her only real hit, and she just had this one. I think it was only on the charts for like one week. Yep, this was it. Yeah. Uh, The only thing I could find on her was that her real name was Lily Sanderson, and she sang with a popular British big band in the 40s. And Mm -hmm. her husband, Tommy Sanderson, was the band's pianist, then made the big time when she was recruited by legendary band leader Henry Hall to move to London and perform with the BBC Dance Orchestra, whose daily BBC radio broadcasts were hugely popular all over the UK, but then ultimately left her career to help take care of her uh, seriously ill mother. So that kind of ended it. So she just had this like one song. It's pleasant. As to this version in particular, this really shows you, even though they're trying to copy it, this really shows you why George Martin was so significant. The production is not great, and the recording itself is just average. Right. Once again, EMI was the greatest recording organization in the world. Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) Is there a version of anyone who had a heart that's really stripped back to just the piano and vocal? Not that I know of. Don't know. I'd have to look that up. Because that could be good. Strip the basics. If he was still alive, rest in peace, Bert. But I'd love to hear Bert doing it just on piano with possibly Dion singing just along to his piano. Yeah, that would be nice. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, it's a shame that he didn't do that with Elvis Costello. There was a combo to do something like that with. Oh, yeah, that would have been lovely. I do like their work together. Yes, indeed. The whole Kisses on the Bottom crew. Yeah. Yeah. Paul couldn't do it anymore, but when he could have, I would have liked to have heard Paul do a version of it. Yeah, that could have been nice. uh, All right, so that closes out February of 1964. Tune in for Side B real soon, where we're going to talk about the American charts. See you then. Take care. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? They introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermost. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. 
they saw that they must have seen that in either the NME or record mirror or disc record and show mirror as it was then and they've taken it from there they've obviously thought how stupid that is how stupid is it's one of those phrases that someone an older person who doesn't understand teenagers comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month top of most of the popper most <laughs>